This is The Reason for Time, Episode 1, a podcast about memory, invention, and truth, and how they all came together in a novel, The Reason for Time. Do you know the book Journal of a Novel by John Steinbeck? It's a collection of letters that Steinbeck wrote to Pascal Covici, his publisher at Viking, every day he was working on the big novel East of Eden. Steinbeck talked about problems with the writing and problems at home. He described social events and mentioned people they both knew. Well, this is going to be a different story of a different novel, and it won't be personal in the same way, except that writers necessarily bring themselves to whatever they write, so I can't avoid the personal altogether, especially when I'm talking about this novel. Readers often want to know about a writer's process, When someone asks me, I have to stop and think, because after seven books, more stories, plays, journalism, the process has become as natural a part of my routine as looking out the window to see what kind of day it will be. One thing, though, all the novels I've written have taken a long time to gel. I love that part, that hazy place where the idea is sort of flying around unfixed until you begin to tame it with craft. Over the next several episodes, you're going to hear how that happens, or happened in the case of The Reason for Time. And you're going to hear the voice of my character brought alive by the wonderful Ethel Witte, who agreed to sit down at my desk, the same place where I wrote the novel, open the book, and read the parts I chose for her. Picture the shelves in the little bookstores we don't have so many of anymore or for that matter, the big chain book retailers. Shelves or whole sections for travel, children's books, literature, general fiction, history, psychology, business, cookbooks. I'm sure you've seen the labels. Well, you'd find my books in the fiction section, literary fiction. I had no plans to write a novel that would also qualify as historical fiction until my mother's funeral. Mom didn't have a lot of relatives just a couple of cousins. And when I asked her cousin Bob about the origin of a family name, Bob said, oh, that must have been the streetcar conductor. You're going to hear more about the streetcar conductor. In fact, he's the character that looms over this podcast, the novel, and ever since my mother's funeral, the back of my mind. What cousin Bob said about him turned up the heat on my usually simmering curiosity. Curiosity is one of the best things you can come with as far as I'm concerned. The mother of creation, as a writer friend once said, I had to know more about how this streetcar conductor might be related to my family. And so, after one fruitful search for a birth certificate in the States, and more fruitless searches in the States and in Ireland, I made an appointment at the Newberry Research Library and flew to Chicago. My maternal grandmother was born in Ireland, in Ennis, County Clare, but I never knew much about her life there or her life in Chicago where she eventually settled. Dear as she was to me and I to her, her first grandchild, she always evaded questions about the past. How was it in Ireland, I would ask? What was your life like there? All she would say was that it was very poor. 
She died on my 17th birthday, and I never did get any more information. But I knew where she was living when my mother was born. So there I was, in that beautiful research library, cool and dark on a muggy Chicago day, feeling luxurious as I do, and I bet other writers do when you're surrounded by words, papers, books, staff members whose very job it is to help you find what you're looking for. I was researching the summer of 1919 when I happened upon a week in the newspapers, black with inch-high headlines every day. All that ink, every day. Not a slow news day among them. This has to be a novel, I thought. A crazy time in Chicago and my grandma was living there. A young woman from Ireland on her own. That was the start. Since I didn't know really anything about her actual history, I would make up a story using a woman who had some things in common with her. Right away, I knew that I wanted to limit the action to the events of the 10 days from July 21st to July 30th. Just over a week that started with a dirigible, the Wingfoot Express, crashing into the Illinois Trust and Savings Bank right in the middle of the loop, and ended with, well, I'll get to that. But first, here is Maeve Kura, only 20 at the time, describing how it was to be part of the crowd that watched the airship crash on that hot July day 97 years ago. Monday, July 21st, 1919. The dirigible fell that fast, gusts of pushed-out air rustled my skirt around my ankles, and wasn't I across Jackson Boulevard by then, not knowing whether to tilt back my head to look or duck for cover. First the spreading shadow, then the odd shout sprung up from here and there, bunching into a roar when that big silver egg dropped flaming from the sky right onto the Illinois Trust and Savings Bank. And one of the parachutes meant for escape. Didn't that fall flaming too? A candle soon snuffed on the ground, barely a block beyond. Others floated through the billows so thick you couldn't see what was attached to them, but you hoped it was someone made it out alive. Look! But where to aim your eyes first? The Wingfoot Express looked so impressive on the ground it had over there at the Grant Park field. But knowing how flimsy it turned out to be had me wondering what fools had wanted to go along for what the paper called a joy ride. No joy for them that day, maybe never again. The screaming started with the plunging made it more terrifying. A great boiling soup of sound, roar of fire, shattering glass, clanging bells, keening voices, clattering metal. Then an unholy minute, sure not even as long as a minute after the explosion, when them gas tanks fueled the airship went up and I might have been deaf. It was that still I thought had been killed, like all of them in the bank and the fellows crashed into it. But I was not about to die then. No, not killed, only bleeding, and just a dab of blood it was on my neck like something had bit me. Window glass spitting way across Jackson Boulevard could have been, and no one caring or even remarking that slight injury or me at all in the crush as half the bodies in the loop shoved forward despite the police hollering at us all to make way for the big-wheeled fire trucks rolling in. The brave ones spilled off the trucks and aimed their ladders up the side of that stricken building, poking their fat hoses into the busted-out windows to douse the inferno inside. Above the usual stink of smoke and horse droppings, the throat-catching billows of oily gas and also a singeing 
like that hair being marcelled in a hot iron. We could only imagine the terrors. And who were all them yelling in there? The girl with the stained fingers took the envelope my boss, Mr. R., gave me to deliver, being too proud to go begging himself. Me admiring the lace collar on her shirtwaist, nice and narrow like a delicate frame around the throat of her, maybe one of them hollering for help. First the shock, then the curiosity in the crowd, livened with the sort of thrill comes with fright, same as when the Mauritania steamed into New York Harbor, everyone rushing the decks, and me and my sister Margaret, just girls, getting near lost in the excitement as I might well have become lost on Jackson Boulevard the Monday that July. I am small, I have always been small, and I early learned to make my way how best I could. Still, being closer to the ground than most, I never saw much of the goings-on at the Illinois Trust and Savings. The man directly in front of me in his summer jacket, sweat bubbling above his starched collar and all of them in straw boaters or fedoras, conspired to block my view. A pair of overalled colored boys, too, maybe sixteen, and just stepping off the northbound train, could have been, exclaiming in their funny voices, Laudy me, just like in the minstrel acts, then laughing as if they found each other comical. From somewhere in the throng, a newsy hollered, Airship crashes, big slaughter. His voice, too, twicked by whatever his family had dragged him from. Bold as brass, they tended to be the newsies. No papers could be printed instant as that. Just minutes before, I'd waited for that lace-collared correspondent had come through the wire cage from the Grand Rotunda with all its marble, and the light shining down through the glass above, throwing patterns over rows of desks with their identical lamps lit, though it was full afternoon. Lamps burning under shapes the shape of flowers, prettier than we had at our place. The wire cage around the girls working on their letters and adding the day's receipts. Had they got out? Or had they? God have mercy on their souls. What a time, too, it being near five o'clock and people streaming out of the office buildings. More and more people crowding into the streets, all of them after joining we many already there, and seeking what protection we could beneath the shoulders of the big bank buildings. Fair to perishing as the heat of the day pooled into that hour, yet jostling together all the same, claimed by the event, opinions motley as the crowd. How could I leave? The rest sinking the same, no doubt, for we milled around and rumours spread faster than the influenza took Packy the year before. Hundreds dead inside, including the bank president, who was to receive Eamon de Valera that day, and wasn't he from our home place, Margaret's and mine, of Ennis de Valera, and didn't he want money to take back for the new republic? Then came the reports that it was not de Valera at all, but Mr. Armour himself who'd been inside with the bank president. Counting his money, fried like his bacon, God rest his soul, poor man, what soul? No heart, no soul. The crowd talking to itself, searching for reasons flying to over the loop, the wing-foot had been, and this to please the photographer who paid the dearest price for his ambition was one theory you could get for free. Another blamed the crew for smoking cigarettes inside the blimp. Like a regular conversation and all except flattened beneath the haze of the sun and we straw-hatted mortals packed onto Jackson Boulevard like pigs and cattle jammed into the Union stockyards to the south. Horns blaring from a few trapped motor cars, and just let a horse try to enter. Reporters from all the papers and photographers with their big cameras popping as they forced in to record the scene. We wouldn't know the facts of what was unfolding before us until we saw the morning editions, the sober stories chronicling the parish, how many had died, and who. The very afternoon, the tallest, the closest, 
One of the ruffians bullied to the front may have seen it all, but the only dead body I glimpsed was slung over to the shoulder of a fireman stepping down a ladder propped up against the bricks. One of the flyers, just a heap by then, could have been a suit of clothes coming down rung by rung on the shoulder of that courageous fellow. A rumor whistled through about how the wrecked airship had landed right on the vault and those at the front were grabbing wads of bills flew out with the window glass. That started more pushing and shoving, and I nearly lost my hat. My sister Margaret's hat, truth be told, had the wider brim I'd wanted for later, when my chum Gladys and me had planned a stroll in the park. Gladys worked for the Cosmo Buttermilk Soap Company in our same building. The grand building she told me about after sickness forced me to quit the catalogue company where we'd met. Gladys usually did all the talking, me being the quiet type, and no doubt had wanted to spool out another chapter in the romance she imagined with Charles Francis Brown. The artist had a studio on the 17th floor of our marquette. On account of the commotion that afternoon, we never did get our stroll. Gladys had run up to 17, seeking comfort from Charles Francis, so she claimed she wanted only a view of his window, faced south and west, where she could see the terrible goings-on, never imagining that one of the heads under the hats belonged to me, Maeve Cora. I had to pry off the lid to protect it, but when I found space enough to lift my arms and dig the hat pins out, I could see the rim had already bent in a way not intended. In the circumstances, Margaret would understand. And while she could not fix everything, turned out, a hat had never stumped her. The papers? They did it somehow. Managed to get a story in the last edition. Leaps from balloon ablaze. Headlights standing like inch-high sayers of doom. Newsy shouting it and dressing up the story. Praising the heroic firemen and how they were heroes. Rich and poor alike perish, yelled those dirty-eared boys, had the imaginations for they couldn't have known yet who'd died. People flocking around at the car step stop to grab a sheet still wet with printer's ink, scraps from the morning editions and candy wrappers tamped beneath every kind of shoe, reports blazing from front pages made a paper wall along the lineup. Wilson is ill, knit workers strike for higher pay, house gives the nod to home liquor stores. And there, in the upper left box, under the very latest news, a paragraph telling how the dirigible had been flying from Comiskey Park to the Loop all day, and hadn't we seen it pass ourselves from our office on the ninth floor of the Marquette, heard the motors humming, glimpsed the shadow it made on the tall buildings, and flocked to the windows for the sight. Not much of a story so soon, but enough to report how the airship had fallen burning and people after drifting, drifting through the sky in parachutes. A gigantic flame shot skyward, this time I knew more than the papers, because I'd seen it all. Yet didn't it seem more real when you saw it printed? Right there in black and white, and not just me reading it, no. All the big shots mattered to the city, reading the same. Really, everyone. When I squeezed onto the Madison car, the conductor watched my nickel drop into the box and asked me what I'd been up to with my hat tilted so, an ostrich feather straying from the crown and my hair nearly undone. But he didn't say it neat-like talking directly to me and waiting an answer. Not that one with the peak pointed down his forehead like his wavy hairs, a line of geese he's leading somewhere. The cap pushed up from his face flushed pink on account of the heat flowing in through the windows, and from the temperature of passengers filled the facing forward seats, the benches, the standing room. No, not that one. 
He was regular on the Madison line, this one, a winker and a talker named Desmond Malloy. I'd been pushed near up to a man, saw him one evening, and said in voice so loud you couldn't help but hear, Is it you then, Desmond Malloy, the conductor himself? And how's your old dad, lad? He wasn't a lad no more, the conductor, and said as much to the fella. They continued their blather over my head about the da, and his bum leg had to be taken off, and wasn't it a sorrow for the mother, and wasn't he lucky then to have four strapping sons to help their folks, and had he heard the latest from City Hall? The man got off the same stop I did, and I stepped down after him. But if Mr. Desmond Malloy took any notice of me, he showed no sign of it until the evening of the day of the Wingfoot Express. I'd watched him, though. A handsome fellow, and kind, too, to help his da. But what got me first was the droll nature of the man. He had a patter, same as Uncle Josh in the vaudeville, and he laughed his own jokes, same as Uncle Josh, too, using us, the riders, as his subject, teasing, and it lightened the journey sometimes, felt long at the end of the day, and rough when the car jolted to a stop on account of a horse and buggy blocking the rails or someone running across. Don't be shy, you with your feathers all ruffled, and her eyes sparkin' like she's got a new fella, he said to the other passengers, most who didn't hear, others who maybe smiled, because wasn't he going on again, this conductor came to see our own, often here at the end of the day on the Madison line. Not till he peered down did it become clear he was talking to me. Would that be the truth of it, miss? In the cram to the window's car my face, not the roses and cream some girls had, but fair enough still to blush, broke out in little patches of perspiration, commenced to funnel right down to the corners of my mouth, and my instinct was to flick my tongue out to catch the drops, since I hadn't the elbow room to dig for the handkerchief in my pocket. Sniffing, I said only if he'd seen what I saw. All the destruction, who knows how many killed, his eyes would be sparking too. What's that, miss, he asked, leaning close, face tipped over mine. The crash and all the destruction, you were there then, you saw it all the dirigible of death. Hadn't I just been inside the bank myself? It came out as a whisper caused him to lean even closer, his breath a bouquet of tobacco and chewing gum. You've had the fright of your life now, haven't you, darling, he said. And you are, darling, but you must have a name. Before I had the chance to tell him I did indeed have a name, it was no business of his, he pulled himself straight up, raised his voice, called out, Halstead Street! Next step, Halstead! Thousands of workers at the yards had walked out on Friday, but they'd walked back in today, and those didn't live near could change at this corner for the Halstead line would get them to the yards. Bodies crushed toward the door, separating the conductor, Desmond Malloy, and me. I watched the shoulders of his dark blue uniform bobbing among and mostly above the rest, and when I got to the door myself, there he stood with a rolled-up trib. Have you seen the morning news, dear? Tear was it now and him aiming the paper towards my crooked elbow, poking it into the V it made alongside my sweaty side, me dipping my head in thanks and with one hand on my hat, stepping onto the cobblestones slashed by the steel rails. And then, topping it all, didn't he wave at me? I laughed, despite the sad story I had to tell them at Bridie's that night on West Monroe, up the block where most everyone had yet to learn about the terrible goings-on downtown. That was Ethel Witty giving voice to Maeve. Speaking of voice, when I was trying this, trying that, wrestling with how to handle such a large amount of material, remember ten days with inch-high headlines, I came upon a slim novel, 
The Bird Artist by Howard Norman, and The Wonderful Voice of Fabian Boss. More about that in Episode 2 of This is the Reason for Time podcast. Thanks to Ethel Witte, Alley Impress of Chicago, and Harris Dixon for helping to make this podcast possible. For more news and information, go to the Reason for Time Facebook page. You can post a question there or message me. The Reason for Time is available through any online bookseller. Order it from your local independent bookstore, say, for example, Volumes Bookstore in Chicago's Wicker Park, or ask for it at your local library. The music you're hearing and that you heard at the opening is from Scott Joplin's concert waltz, Bethana. I'm Mary Burns. Thanks for listening.